This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This weekend, fears spiked that the Israel-Hamas war may escalate more broadly across the Middle East. Just yesterday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu issued this promise while speaking with Israeli soldiers. If Hezbollah decides to enter the war, it will wish it was the second Lebanon war again. It will make the mistake of its life. We will strike it with a force it cannot even imagine, and the significance for it and the state of Lebanon will be devastating. Of course, that's Netanyahu there uh, speaking through translation. In fact, there is already spillover. Netanyahu said those words in northern Israel, and Israel and Hezbollah are firing on each other's positions in the northern border with Lebanon. In addition to the thousands of Palestinians killed and wounded in Gaza, dozens more have been killed by settlers and Israeli forces in the West Bank. U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria have come under attack, and the United States has ordered all non-emergency personnel to leave Iraq. Iranian-backed Houthi forces in Yemen fired missiles apparently aimed at Israel. And an Egyptian border post was hit by an Israeli tank shell, though Israel says that was a mistake. On Saturday, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced that the U.S. is sending additional air defense systems throughout the region in in response to these escalations, in addition to transferring the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower Aircraft Carrier Strike Group to the Persian Gulf. He explained more on ABC's This Week yesterday. Uh, What we're seeing is is the prospect of a significant escalation of attacks uh, on our troops and uh, our our people throughout the region. And because of that, we're going to do what's necessary to make sure that our troops are in the right, the good position, uh, they're, they're protected, and that we have the ability to respond. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continued the Biden administration's messaging over the weekend. He was asked yesterday by Kristen Welker of NBC's Meet the Press, just how hard is the administration pushing Israel not to escalate? Welker asked Blinken if the U.S. is opposed to a preemptive strike by Israel, as has been discussed by some Israeli officials. Israelis have been very clear with us, and we share share this view. No one wants a second or third front, uh, including when it comes to to Lebanon, northern Israel, southern Lebanon. Uh, That's not in anyone's interest, and that's exactly why we've sent a very strong message to try to deter uh, Hezbollah, deter uh, Iran more directly from opening up a second front. You've heard the president speak to this very clearly. Don't take advantage of the situation. We've also deployed very significant assets to the region. However, is the opening of a second or third front possible? Is wider war on the horizon? And what can be done to stop it? Well, we're going to begin today in Lebanon, where Ali Hashem joins us. He's in Nakura, Lebanon, and he's correspondent for Al Jazeera and a columnist for Al Monitor. His reporting focuses on Hezbollah. Ali Hashem, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much for having me. Can you first tell us a little bit more detail of what's been happening on the Israel-Lebanon border and those exchanges between uh, Israeli forces and Hezbollah? Well, for the past uh, two weeks, um, Hezbollah and Israel have been exchanging fire uh, across the border. Now, the fact is that this uh, this escalation or this tension is contained to the 120 kilometers line, the border line, and in a depth of three, four kilometers on, on both sides. Um, luckily to the moment, uh, this tension, this escalation hasn't 
uh, slided into the bigger conflict, and uh, it's still contained within this geographical area. However, it's it's getting uh, harder and it's getting uh, much more tense uh, with respect to intensity, velocity, frequency. So we can see that the way we are, as journalists, we're not able to, to move just as we used to do, to do before. The more the Israeli shelling, the more Hezbollah attacks on Israeli military positions, and um, even with the number of, of uh, fighters killed from Hezbollah's side, or the damage on the Israeli side, because we don't know, the, the, at least I don't have access to the, the numbers coming from Israel, but at least from here, uh, for example, over the past few, uh, a couple of days, we have like um, around uh, 12, 13 Hezbollah fighters being killed. Mm. So it, it seems things are uh, kind of escalating gradually within what they call the rules of engagement. Though I think that these rules of engagement are being updated on on daily basis. I see. Uh, with each side. Ali, are you there? Well, we will try to get him back. I tell you, we are being beset by technological issues these days, which I will uh, share your listener listeners. If you have the frustration that I'm feeling right now, uh, we are feeling the same way. We're going to work to get Ali back. So while we do that, let's turn now to Aranda Slim. She's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and a non-resident fellow at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced and International Studies. And she joins us from Ohio. Rhonda Slim, welcome to On Point. Good to be with you. So um, I was about to ask Ali, and I'll just turn this question to you first. Um, I wonder if you, in order to understand the significance of the um, the exchanges between Israeli forces and Hezbollah that are going on now, give us a little bit of background. I mean, how much of a part of uh, a previous Israel-Gaza um, conflicts has Hezbollah been in terms of um, firing rockets, etc.? No, the Ali referred to rules of engagement between Hezbollah and Israel, which have been now put in place since uh, the end of the war between them in 2006. And we have seen violation of these rules every now and then, depending on, you know, Israeli hits on Syria, which might have, you know, which might have killed Hezbollah, Hezbollah operatives there. Uh, but in previous Hamas-Israel uh, war in Gaza, uh, Hezbollah really has refrained from escalating the front. Uh, and partly it is because they felt that Hamas could take care of that war on their own. Partly because Israeli objectives in those wars were not to eradicate Hamas, to prevent them from governing, as is the case right now, based on what military Israeli officials have said, but it was mostly in the past to deter and punish Hamas. So the red line for Hezbollah has been, especially recently, is that the intervention, they will intervene if they assess that Hamas is about to be eradicated. And by Hamas, I mean Hamas military infrastructure, Hamas political infrastructure, and the ability of Hamas to reconstitute itself in Gaza. So what are the criteria they use in assessing that? What's the threshold of violence? How many Hamas leaders have to be killed? Leaders that are operating inside the Gaza Strip? I don't know, Mm. but they have their own criteria. And so you are going to see proportional escalation, as Ali said, 
with it contained for now, although I agree with him, these rules of the game that have existed between the two parties, Israel and Hezbollah, have been since the, for the past two weeks being degraded slowly and steadily. To give you an idea, today the death toll among Hezbollah, of Hezbollah militant, is about 40% of their death toll in the 2006 war. Uh -huh. So we are getting close to that level where, uh, I mean, the escalation becomes inevitable. Mm. Although I think until now, Hezbollah has not made the decision to really open a second front with Israel. I see. So, okay, so in dis in discussing the possibility, the grim possibility of, of a second or, or third front uh, opening up in this already awful war. Let me just play for you, uh, Rhonda, a little bit of uh, tape from uh, IDS spokesman Peter Lerner. He was on ABC News' This Week last weekend, and he issued this warning to Hezbollah. I would highly recommend that Hezbollah watch very closely what is happening to Hamas and their organization in Gaza as we speak. They should be very cautious of crossing that threshold because we are determined to defend the state of Israel. How much can we know or understand how warnings like that, which have not only come from the IDF spokesman, they've come from, as we heard earlier, both the Secretary of State uh, Blinken and Secretary of State Austin. I mean, how, how do those warnings fall on the ears of Hezbollah leadership? They are definitely, they take them into consideration. After all, Hezbollah is a sub-state actor in Lebanon, in a country which is suffering from a dire economic crisis, where the majority of the population does not see a war will help them or will benefit them or is in their interest. So they have to take that into consideration. But at the same time, Hezbollah is part of this, what's called the resistance axis, of which Hamas is a member, Islamic Jihad is a member, Iraqis, militias, which are funded and trained by Iran, are members. And then recently, Nasrallah, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the ex uh, secretary general of Hezbollah, has been talking about unification of France, something close to an Article 5 in NATO. If one of our members in the resistance axis, that's what, what he has been saying, is hit or is about to be, you know, basically eliminated, then they are going to do everything, all these other members of the resistance axis, to prevent that scenario from unfolding. We have seen how they intervened in Syria mm -hmm. to prevent the, uh, the, the, the fall of the Assad regime. Now, in Syria, they were fighting militias. Here, they are fighting two mighty Isra military machines, the Israeli military on one hand, and then the threat comings from the Americans on, on the other hand. So they have to take that into consideration. But still, I still think there is a red line that if crossed by Israel and they determine it has been crossed, I think they are going to open a second front. Okay, so uh, Rhonda, let me just ask you, we have 30 seconds before our first break. And if I missed this earlier, my apologies, but how would you describe what that red line is? That red line is Hamas should not be eradicated, should not be eviscerated, and should be able to reconstitute itself as a government in, in Gaza. Oh, okay. So, Rhonda Slim, stand by for just a moment. We are talking today about whether or not uh, the Israel-Hamas war is at a precipice of becoming a much wider war. We're hearing discussions of the possibilities of second and third fronts, even. Is there anything that can be done to stop it? We'll be back. This is On Point.
Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're taking a very close look at the possibility of wider war in the Middle East. We're hearing talk of the opening, perhaps, of a second or third front in the Israel-Hamas war. Well, the explosion at the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital in Gaza caused outrage around much of the world by people who uh, were experienced by people who were convinced it was caused by an Israeli bomb, though Israel, Canada, France, and the United States all say the explosion was likely caused by a misfired rocket from inside of Gaza. Nevertheless, protesters took to the streets in cities across the Middle East, including Jordan's capital of Amman. So sounds from the streets of Amman in just one of the locations in many countries uh, around uh, Israel and Gaza that are feeling extremely heightened tensions at this moment. Uh, Rhonda Slim is with us. She's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. And Rhonda, I'm going to come back to you very, very quickly, but we have Ali Hashem in Lebanon back on the line with us. Ali, my apologies for the technical difficulties, but um, I was going to ask you the question I asked Rhonda. I'd still like to hear your response, you being there about, um, you know, how far do you think Hezbollah is willing to go in its current attacks on Israel? And Rhonda described that she believes Hezbollah does have a red line in terms of um, the what would need to be crossed for it to engage in full-scale battle uh, with Israel, and that red line being um, the attempted eradication of Hamas. What do you think? Uh, well, I agree completely with uh, with Randa. Yes, uh, there's a red line, and uh, I think for now Hezbollah's move and the axis behind Hezbollah, led by Iran, this is a tactical move with uh, a strategic objective. The main objective here is to prevent Israel from annihilating Hamas. This is the main issue: trying to distort or distract the uh, Israeli military from one front and uh, creating a, a challenge on, and a threat on another front that's actually uh, um, ha- with the potential to become an A front. You know, if, if there is a war between Hezbollah and, and Israel, and at the same time another war on another front ben, uh, between Israel and uh, Hamas, then the A front will be in, in, South, in South Lebanon, given the fact that Hezbollah is way uh, stronger and with more capabilities and uh, more possibility to inflict damage on Israel than Hamas. 
Okay. So this is okay. this is the main issue. Uh, now, how much Hezbollah wants to go deep into this conflict? This is a big question, given the fact that the Lebanese situation is is different. Also, uh, we're dealing here with uh, rational players. Hezbollah could be uh, driven by ideology, but mm -hmm. when it comes to situations like this, whether it's Hezbollah or Iran, and we saw how Iran dealt with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, they're mm -hmm. always uh, pragmats, pragmatics, and they would, write, they would like to take approaches that are not suicidal. So uh, the only possibility that this could get bigger is that there'll be a threat on the existence of Hamas, because that would mean there will be a momentum for Israel to end the front in, 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 in Gaza and then uh, concentrate and focus more and more on the front with Hezbollah, and then Hezbollah would be, will be next. Okay, Ali, After can I just Hezbollah. jump in here for a second and ask a very quick question? Because it seems as if there's... Uh, I'm hearing you describe what in my mind seems to be somewhat of something of a divergence because, you know, Hezbollah, as you said, may be driven by ideology, but is also, uh, you know, as you analyze it, uh, a, a somewhat rational actor doesn't actually wish for its own, uh, its own annihilation. But as both you and Rhonda have described, there is this red line of, you know, if Israel um, continues on its uh, quest to obliterate Hamas, which, by the way, Israel has not backed away from that language at all. It does sound to me as if those two things are not compatible with each other, because uh, if Israel does choose to uh, to go into Gaza to execute a ground war, does you know at what time would Hezbollah wait to see, well, this is an actual attempt to eradicate Hamas? It seems as if no time would be wasted on making that decision at all. So therefore... Does it not seem that that a, a second front could open up almost immediately, Ali? Well, we are already there is already here a front. Okay. We we can't say that this is not a front. This is a front. At the beginning, maybe the first few days, it was an operation zone. But right now, it's it's itself a side front. Now, how things could really roll and 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 slide into the bigger conflict? It depends on how Hamas is going to uh, act towards or react to the Israeli uh, incursion or, or uh, invasion. Um, given the fact Hezbollah, Hamas, and all these groups are uh, on very close coordination, um, they, they actually have a kind of an assessment of how much these groups are capable of resisting or, or of inflicting um, damage on, on Israel. Um, we, will we, we can just go back as a reference to the 2006 war between Hezbollah and Israel. Mm -hmm. When Israel started its, its incursion in South Lebanon, it's when the, the damage started uh, appearing by Hezbollah using anti-tank missiles to hit Israeli tanks. So for Hamas, they already have these kinds of miss, this kind of missiles. They already have a very uh, sophisticated um, anti-tank um, mines. So this is what they are uh, depending on. But the moment they feel that this is not doing any good anymore, I think then it maybe would be the time to, to raise the stake and create more and more uh, situation to, to uh, get into the to get into the war. Now, mm. how much would that be? Um, uh, how much would that broaden or expand? That's, that's the big question. We can see how Iran and its allies 
are trying to create reasons, not for Israel, but for the U.S. to interfere to prevent Israel from getting to that objective by you know, using the leverage, the geographical leverage they have mm-hmm. in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, to create this situation whereas it's a kind of a threat that there might be a regional confrontation, there might be a regional uh, war. So they'll push the, the West and the United States to pressure more and more Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, to, you know, kind of lower his objectives. Yeah. But yeah. The problem is that this situation is also very dire for Benjamin Netanyahu because he's, he's in the middle of two wars. He's in the middle of a war with, with Hamas and the axis behind Hamas, and he's also in the middle of an internal war with his rivals. Correct, correct. Well, Ali Hashem, correspondent for Al Jazeera and a columnist for Al Monitor, he's joined us today from Nakura, Lebanon. Um, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, Rhonda Slim, I'm, in just a moment, I'm going to uh, introduce another person, a, an American who has quite a bit of experience in the region. But I wanted to get your uh, reaction first to the sort of balancing act that uh, Ali described Hezbollah might be going through right now. I, I agree with uh, Ali that there is a balancing act that's taking place uh, and that uh, we have seen the entry into uh, this confrontation of uh, Iraqi militias, uh, they are attacking, they have attacked uh, U.S. bases in Iraq, they have attacked U.S. military presence in Syria. Uh, we don't know whether uh, the missiles sent by Houthis are ta- were targeting Israel or were targeting uh, U.S. military assets that happen to be passing through the region. Uh, So definitely, I think, but eventually there are going to be four factors that are going to affect Hezbollah calculus. One is uh, how serious they take the U.S. threat, because Mm. Israel, they can deal with it. They can deal with the Israeli threat. But the U.S. threat is something that is um, that is something that. It's very hard. They can they can they can fight a war with Israel. They cannot fight a war with the U.S. and Israel at the same time. So that's one. How serious do they take the American threat of intervention if Hezbollah were to open a second front? Two, where is the Arab public opinion mm-hmm. on Hezbollah's intervention? We have already seen protests in Cairo calling on Nasrallah to intervene in this war on behalf of Gaza. And three is how bloody is the war going to be? It all depends what kind of ground incursion Israel will uh, will do. If it is the bloodier, the more violent it is, you know, I think that's going to create also more pressure on Hezbollah to open, to escalate even more. Because I agree with Ali, there is already a front on the Lebanese-Israeli uh, border. The question is, how much will this escalation keep going. Mm. Well, Rhonda, stand by uh, for just a moment, because regarding the uh, the seriousness of the U.S. threat um, or, or the threat the United States military is making in terms of its willingness to become involved in the region, um, President Biden has spoken several times about that in the past week or so. Last week, uh, CBS 60 Minutes host Scott Pelley uh, asked the president this. There's limited fighting already on the northern Israeli border, and I wonder what is your message to Hezbollah and its backer, Iran? Don't 
Don't, don't, don't. Don't come across the border. Don't escalate this war. That's right. Well, joining us now is Ryan Crocker. He's a former career diplomat. He served as ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Lebanon, Syria, Kuwait, Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And he's now a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ambassador Crocker, welcome back to On Point. Thank you, Megan. Okay, so first of all, give us your read um, on the actions taken just over the past few days uh, by the Biden administration and the United States military. You heard Lloyd Austin, uh, Secretary Austin, a little bit earlier talking about moving more assets uh, into the region. What's your answer to Rhonda's question about how seriously to take uh, the U.S.'s uh, rhetoric and quote-unquote threat in terms of its willingness to become involved? Listening to uh, Rhonda and Ollie just now uh, reminds me once again that in the Middle East, and this is the Middle East, uh, there aren't any good options. There, there's bad and there's worse. Uh, with respect to the uh, U.S. posture right now and its involvement, um, I go back 40 years. Uh, today is October 23, 2023, 40 years ago today, the Marine barracks mm-hmm. in Lebanon blew up. Mm-hmm with a, a loss of 244 Marines. And my, my heart goes out to their families uh, on this sad anniversary. But it also illustrates the limits uh, to effective power. Uh, then, as now, of course, uh, we had a battle group in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, we had Marines ashore, of course. It paid a horrible price. Uh, once again, we have a battle group in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, once again, we have a, a thousand Marines uh, in theater. Uh, what happened last time is something I think the U.S. has to keep in mind as well as the adversaries uh, of the U.S. We, we had a World War II-era battleship, the New Jersey, fired 16-inch shells, um, doing almost no damage. So we're the most powerful nation on Earth, uh, but that power has to translate into effect. And I think it's going to be very hard for us uh, to find an area of entry that uh, is going to produce an effect that we intend uh-huh. and not the uh, consequences of uh, uh, unforeseen future scenarios. Right. So Rhonda a little bit earlier had mentioned the, you know, the, the, the clear fact that – there's a massive asymmetry of power and capability when combining uh, the abilities of the Israeli military and, of course, the United States military. Uh, asymmetry between those two and Hezbollah. So the the idea, though, is that uh, the asymmetry is supposed to produce some kind of deterrence for uh, groups like Hezbollah. It sounds like you're saying, though, that history shows us that that may not actually be the case, Ambassador. I'm afraid that very much is is the truth right now. I, I can't predict uh, different outcomes. I know very little about Hezbollah, their uh, state of organization, their levels of uh, armaments. Uh, but again, it is very hard to destroy a group like that. Just as Israel will find, I'm afraid, that it's going to be very hard to um, uh, eliminate Hamas in total. I mean, we've seen that ourselves. We, we have gone after um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, Islamic State, uh, uh, try, and we've, we've weakened them but not eliminated them. And if that's the, the, uh, the goal here, it may turn out to be an impossible goal. Mm. The big uh, issue, I think, is you know, one common factor, and that is Iran. Yes. Uh, 
it was the Iran-Syrian coalition in uh, uh, the early 80s that brought us the horrors of the embassy bombing in April and the Marine Barracks bombing in, in October. Uh, well, Iran is now backing uh, the main belligerents against Israel, both Hamas and, uh, and, and Hezbollah. Uh, and I, I have to think that uh, as Israelis, Israel's emergency government is looking at its options, uh, that in that potential uh, target deck would be a strike on Iran. Mm -hmm. Well, Rhonda Slim, let me uh, hear your thoughts on this because in addition to Hamas and Hezbollah, um, in the beginning of the show I mentioned the – uh, that uh, the Houthi in Yemen as well. I mean, it is how do you read Iran's involvement right now? And is it just a uh, is destabilizing the region, perhaps even coming short of opening up a second or third front? Is the destabilization that's currently going on um, in Iran's favor? It's 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 an interesting question. Look, I don't think there will be a resistance access in the Levant without Iran funding, training, support. So, you know, I know I heard the American officials, including President Biden, saying there is no smoking gun linking Iran to this attack on October 7. But in, I mean, holistically, I mean, this attack would have not been possible without years of training and funding and support. And in fact, the leader of Hamas, uh, uh, Khaled Mash'al, has already said that in, 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 in an interview, saying that, you know, Iran and Hezbollah have provided us weapons, money, and training. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's, it's hard to tell where Israel is going to go. I agree with, with Ambassador Crocker that definitely a hit on Iran is going to be part of the Netanyahu government thinking, uh, not maybe the whole government, because now we have two new members that have joined what's called a unity government who might be, you know, f uh, you know, counseling restraint. But definitely, I think and, and that will be catastrophic. I think we are going to see a, a, a major war in the region if that were to take place. Mm. Well, Rhonda Slim and Ambassador Ryan Crocker will be back in just a minute and we'll talk more about um, if the opening up of a multi-front war can be avoided, and just how far the United States may be willing to go to either do that or avoid getting sucked into a regional war. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Dig. 
You're back with On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the risks of wider war or the expansion of multiple fronts in the Israel-Hamas war. Rhonda Slim is with us, as is Ambassador Ryan Crocker, and I'll ask the two of you to stand by for just a moment because I'd like to turn to Ehud Eiran. He's joining us from Harutzim, Israel. He's former assistant foreign policy advisor to then-Prime Minister Ehud Barak and a retired IDF major as well. He's currently a professor of political science at Haifa University. Uh, Ehud Eiran, welcome to On Point. Hi, Magna. It's good to be back. So can you t- give me um, a quick read, if at all possible, on uh, the the mood or sort of decision-making mindset uh, in the Israeli war cabinet? Because as we talk about the possibility of spillover, of course, much of this depends on what Israel decides to do. So what do you see right now, Ehud? So first of all, let me add to what uh, uh, my previous speakers said. The concern here, I think, is not only the spread of war, but also the reversal of peace. Israel made a lot of achievements in peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan, 70s and 90s, and more recently with Gulf states. And the concern that the spillover won't only mean more violence, but also a reversal of these achievements. Uh, so, so that's maybe a broad way of how, how people think about mm-hmm. it here. Mm-hmm. Um, Israel's desire to respond is threefold. Uh, first of all, there's an element of uh, uh, deterring future attacks. We have 15,000 people who relocated from border areas because it's very hard to live next to a place where a thousand, thousands of people can attack you and murder in one day a thousand civilians. And then there's broader goals of deterring the region. The feeling here is that uh, Israel's success in the region is a result of showing strength. And in October 7th, we were dealt a massive blow. And finally, on the public sentiment, but I'm not sure among decision makers, there's a simple desire to hit back. Um, Hopefully, as Randa mentioned, the two more moderate uh, actors now in the war cabinet will mitigate these voices and focus on a more rationalist decision making. Right, because the simple desire to hit back leads to things like the United States experience after 20 years in Iraq. But I've been seeing, though, that there's also talk in Israel about maybe amongst... uh, 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 some members of Israeli leadership, a willingness, a, a, a true willingness to engage in war, a war that could last years, if not decades, Ehud. Yeah, this, I mean, initially the, the feeling here was there'll be a short operation in which Hamas will be severely hit. But now these voices are coming more, I think, from military circles saying this is a much longer uh, a process than we thought. So I don't think it reflects a public sentiment. No one here wants a long, prolonged war, in part because we are based on a reserve army. So that means many teachers, workers, and so on are absent from the economy. So it would be very hard to sustain an ongoing full military operation for years. Mm. Well, Ehud, let me ask you, um, it seems... Look, from, from just sheer, the, the sheer human cost of war, as it has already um, uh, occurred now to this point, plus the, the uh, potential long-term human cost of war if multiple fronts uh, open up, supposing it actually happens and there's spillover across the region, can you see any scenario in which Israel sees that there's an upside to the expansion of the conflict? Hmm. The, uh, f- generally, no. I mean, ultimately, our security doctrine is based on the feeling that we are maybe we're strong, but we are small, and there is no real military solution to our the fact we are generally rejected by the region. So all of our military operations in the last seventy-five years were aimed at 
you know, deterrence and maybe creating conditions for political solution, but no overall uh, military solution like the Second World War is feasible in this region. The only voices I can hear about this broader conflict is some in Israel view this as a broader clash between axis, moderate axis, the US, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, us, maybe Cyprus and Greece, versus the more radical axis, which Randa mentioned, the Mukawama, the resistance, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran. And so maybe a clash like this will deal a blow uh, to the Mukawama. But this is coupled with many risks, and Prime Minister Netanyahu, despite his uh, um, uh, alpha male type uh, leadership, in reality was very cautious in using force because there are all these unintended consequences, including political consequences. Mm. Well, Ehud Iran, former assistant foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Ehud Barak and a retired IDF major, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Magna. Okay, Ambassador Crocker, I'd love to hear from you about... um, what you glean from what Ehud just said, because when he said he doesn't really see any any possible upside for a, a true expansion uh, of this war for Israel, I wonder if your own experience in the region can help us understand the significance of that. I mean, for example, um, in the 1982 Israel-Lebanon war, can you just quickly remind us of your experience there and what you learned from it about why Israel... Uh, it would behoove Israel to be careful in its next steps. Yes, I I was at the uh, embassy in Beirut uh, in 1982. Mm -hmm. Uh, Operation Peace for Galilee aimed at ending the PLO uh, armed threat to Israeli security. They were – PLO was engaged in uh, cross-border rocketing and so forth. Uh, A fairly limited objective and it went horribly wrong. Indeed, Israel did push the PLO back and effectively ended its ability to uh, to threaten Israel's north. But in place of it, they got Hezbollah. Uh, they went through a, an 18-year uh, presence in Lebanon uh, with a so-called security zone until the year 2000 uh, when they withdrew completely. And as I look at the landscape now and Israel's options, uh, statements like the warning to to uh, Gazans to move to the south to get out of the north. I think another uh, card on the target deck on the Israeli table is um, a a limited uh, incursion uh, covering the north, but not trying to reoccupy all of Gaza. Uh, that would have been a an unthinkable option uh, before October seven. Uh, given the experience of Israel in uh, in Lebanon and the 1,100-plus IDF uh, fatalities they suffered during those 18 years. But October 7 changed that. Uh, I think a fundamental goal here is, as Ehud said, to um, ensure there are not further attacks across the, um, the Gaza line. And a uh, security zone that made no sense on October 6th uh, I think is probably on the table as we talk today. Uh, they lost the Israelis lost thirteen hundred people more than they lost in Lebanon in in eighteen years. Thirteen hundred people mm-hmm. in one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I have to think that limited scenario is also possible. Uh, but again, just to to go back again on the uh, uh, Iran issue, uh, should uh, uh, the Israelis strike Iran and? Should the U.S. back up Israel with the massive firepower we have, 
um, uh, there aren't going to be a lot of tears shed for Iran in the uh, in the Middle East. Uh, the UAE, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia, Egypt uh, all find Iran just absolute anathema. Uh, it is Persian. It is not Arab. Uh, those differences go back a long way and mean a lot. Uh, but again, the danger of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows what you get if you do this? And finally, I'd just like to add one other possible combatant to the notion of a larger war. Uh, that would be the West Bank. Yes. Uh, we, we have seen over time some, some pretty significant intifadas, uprisings. Um, and I would think the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is, is looking at that too. Um, are they going to be embarrassed as... Uh, letting the Gazans bear the brunt of all of this, uh, or are they going to try to um, uh, increase the heat? Mm -hmm. mm. Well, in terms of tears being shed, um, as I as I watch day, every single day, um, just I have do note the sheer death toll already. As you noted, Ambassador Crocker, the uh, you know the thirteen hundred plus. Uh, uh, Israelis killed, murdered on October 7th, and now the devastation that's going on in Gaza, um, tears are being shed everywhere uh, for the human cost already. But Rhonda, um, very, very interesting thing that Ehud said, and I wonder if you buy it, uh, Ehud Iran, before we had to let him go, where he said that even though uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has this, um, well, actually quite... Uh, a radical view about, uh, for example, the the role of Israeli settlers in the West Bank, and he has this alpha male uh, persona that he was actually he's actually quite cautious in using um, military force. Does that make sense to you? Because look at the response that Israel has already um, undertaken regarding just bombing of Gaza before even any uh, ground invasion. You know, I mean, I want to build on what Ehud, but also Ambassador yes. Crocker has said in the past, which is that to eradicate Hamas, as is the Israeli objective, we are talking about leveling Gaza, right. basically turning Gaza into a tent city. We are talking possibly about half a million deaths, you know. And I wonder whether this is now being factored into discussion of scenarios. And, um, you know, as Ambassador Crocker said, I see more and more the likelihood of a limited incursion in the north uh, because of the many other intended unintended consequences, but also because of the cost. The cost to, I mean, we are already seeing demonstrations around the world calling for de-escalation, condemning Israel, calling for a ceasefire. Also, demonstration against the U.S. refusal to go for a ceasefire, as they have done mm -hmm. in in vetoing a, a United Security Council resolution uh, last week advanced by Brazil for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, we, uh, however, however, what 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 still scares me about it is that, as Ali said earlier, is that Netanyahu's political future is on the line. Mm. And whether he's going to heed the calls for revenge that's coming from the public as a way to ensure his political survival. But also he has to be aware 
of the costs, unintended and real cost of a major incursion, as Ambassador Crocker said. So I think it's a balancing act going on. There are differences of opinion inside the war cabinets between the more pragmatic, military, moderate wing, maybe, and the others, you know, including uh, the more right-wingers, you know, the representative of the settler movements inside the war cabinet. So, and then there is a pressure of the United States. It's very clear that on one hand, President Biden pledged unconditional support, you know, you know, uh, right of Israel to defend itself. But at the same time, we have been seeing in the last two, three days, a push behind closed doors by President Biden for Israel to rethink its approach, to think of the day after, and maybe a push to give diplomacy more of a role, especially if it can lead to more release of hostages that are being held by Hamas. Mm. Okay. Well, I want to spend the last couple of minutes of the show talking about um, what more could be done. I mean, Rhonda, I appreciate your, your reminding us of perhaps behind-the-scenes diplomatic efforts to uh, lower the temperature a little bit. Uh, Here's uh, an in-front-of-camera example of that, because during uh, his visit to Israel last week, President Biden, as we recall, expressed his unconditional support for the people of Israel, but also offered this example from the United States' own history. I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm the first U.S. president to visit Israel in time of war. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. There's always cost, but it requires being deliberate. It requires asking very hard questions. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. So, Ambassador Crocker, as we've discussed this hour, a spillover or the creation of a wider war um, depends on what happens on the ground on a day-to-day basis, but then also the decisions made by leadership in response to those events. What could be done to smooth the path to... Um, more effective decisions that prevent a wider war. I mean, do you do you think that the Israeli cabinet, not just the war cabinet, but the larger cabinet, is um, in a position to make those kinds of decisions right now? We're in very, very close dialogue with uh, the Israeli government, as you know. Uh, our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has actually been in uh, the emergency government meeting so that we have the opportunity to gauge uh, Israeli thinking on the subject and to send some messages to amplify on what uh, President Biden uh, has said. Uh, don't don't let anger uh, rule your logic. Uh, I, I would add to that, as I'm sure we have done in public, uh, do not give up the high ground, the moral high ground uh, that resulted from the October 7 attacks. Uh, these were horrific. Uh, not just uh, those killed, but those taken hostage. Several hundred hostages, including Americans, uh, many of them children. Uh, So don't give up that ground. Uh, Don't turn the entire Arab world against you. Uh, Has that moment create... not already passed, though, Ambassador? I'm sorry to jump in here, but when, uh, when we hear Israeli officials say, 
before this weekend that they were not going to let any humanitarian supplies into Gaza. Uh, I mean, that kind of stuff is is not taken upon taken you know well around the world. Uh, of course it isn't, but the reality is, as you know, that um, uh, convoys are now moving into Gaza uh, with relief supplies. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know, not nearly enough, but it is a beginning and it is something to build on. And that gets at the heart of the American role, I think. We, we still are the indispensable nation. Uh, if, if we don't lead, no one else will, or at least no one else will, that is going to have any hope of getting an outcome. We can talk to all the parties. We're doing that. Uh, we have great people on the ground, Beth Jones in Cairo, uh, our new ambassador in Jordan, Yael Lempert, David Satterfield, an old friend, now named humanitarian coordinator. Only the U.S. can do this. Uh, no guarantee on the outcomes, but we are the indispensable player in this war. Well, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, uh, Megan. And I would just like to say to all those listening, uh, support your local public radio station. <laughs> thank Mine you, is KSFC in Spokane. <laughs> thank you so much, Ambassador. And Rhonda Slim, I thank you as well. Thank you very much. This is On Point.